we will start a journey on Route 66. You've seen from your bulletin, I've, I've titled this new series. It's a new series we're going to do. I've titled it Route 66. This is a series through the entire Bible. We're going to do one book each Sunday. I hope you brought lunch. No, I know that sounds scary because you know me, but we're really going to try to do this. We're going to do one book. Uh, the main thrust, the main theological point of each book each week. I'll give you the first five. Genesis is lost and in conflict. Exodus is redeemed. Leviticus is worship. The book of Numbers, Wandering the Wilderness, is about faith. I'm not home yet. But how will I live in the desert, in this wilderness, along the way? The book of Deuteronomy is living in God's covenant. So this is the first five. That's where we're going. We're going to take about those first five, certainly, probably the first eight books or so. And then we'll pause and we'll do something else and we'll kind of come back to it. I don't want to just plow through the whole thing all at once. I'll wear you out. I'll lose you along the way. I want to give you time to go back and check your GPS and get your bearings again, okay? So that's our plan. I I expect for those 66 messages in that series, we might take the next two years because we'll dig into some other books along the way. We'll stop and we'll pause and we'll dig in here and there. But uh, we'll keep coming back to this Route 66. What is Route 66? Route 66 was the mother road. Route 66 was the first highway across the U.S. where you could follow one highway all the way. You could start out in the spring, maybe early spring, maybe later spring. It's still miserably cold in Chicago, Illinois. And you could start and you could wind your way down through through Springfield, Missouri, St. Louis and Springfield, down to Oklahoma City, across Amarillo, Texas, and you keep going because there's no reason to stop in Amarillo, Texas. And you go across Santa Fe and into Arizona and Flagstaff and then Barstow, California, across the Mojave Desert and into downtown L.A. Now somebody analyzed that along the way and they realized why in the world are we stopping at downtown L.A.? Have you been to downtown L.A.? I've been to downtown. We got lost there too. That was just a few weeks ago. Uh, we, we determined we we're going to, it was my idea, we're going to follow the end of Route 66. We're going to do this. We're going to go right to where it ends. And I had my map, and I was following it this time. But you know, there's another thing about those GPS and the phone things. You know, you turn it this way and that way, and it keeps flipping on you. And, 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 and Julie's driving, I'm navigating, and, and I need to know where to turn. Where should I turn? Where do I go? I don't know! Sometimes when you're pressed in the midst of it for the answer, you wish you'd taken time to look it up in advance. Yeah, well, well, eventually the route for Route 66, they extended it out of L.A., on through L.A., all the way to the Santa Monica Pier. And there they have a sign right there on the pier. I've seen it. It says, the end of the Mother Road, Route 66. What a glorious destination. But it's nothing like ours. Our destination begins in a garden with God. But things go bad very quickly. But it ends in the book of Revelations, in the, glory, in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, it ends in the glory of God's presence, where sin has been put away. There are no more crying. There are no more tears. There's no need for healing because we are full and complete and healed in the presence of God, in glory. All sin has been removed. All shame has been removed. All guilt is gone. And we are in the presence of the one who loves us. That's our destination. It's even better than Santa Monica. 
But that's Route 66. That's the mother road. That's a path. And I'm not the first preacher that came up with the idea, hey, Route 66, 66 books. We could do something with that. So we're going to do something with that. We're going to track route, God's Route 66. We're going to take a journey finding our way home. I want us to, to uh, along the way and at the end of this, to have a, a, a grasp together of the big picture the grand themes, just like as you're driving along, you might not, and might not stop and see every flower along the way. You'll never get to California. But you're going to see the grand landscapes. You're going to see the big stuff along the way as you drive. And when you're going through Texas, you're just going to see big. Nothing, but, but, but it's big. I want us to get that big landscape view of God's Word. What is the Bible all about? And then as we're reading in different parts, we will get it from that hole. That's, that's my goal as we, as we jump into round 66. Now, our first up, first up in round 66, finding our way, is the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis, as I said before, is lost and in conflict. You may be familiar with the John Milton classic, Paradise Lost. You can get it for free on Kindle. I'd encourage you to do that. But, but that... Genesis, to, to understand Genesis and what happens in the book of Genesis, and understanding what happens in Genesis uh, helps us understand a lot about what's happening in life. What's going on in your life right now? Why do we need to pray the way we prayed? Why, why do we have the conflicts that we do? Those are answered. Those are explained early in the book of Genesis. Let me give you a, a, a brief overview of the book of Genesis. Really quick, you, you perhaps didn't read through it all this week, but I, I put on the back of your notes some high points that uh, you can in this next week. Go back, look at some of those high points. Some of you will take one of those this week. Some of you, <laughs> you are achievers, so you're going to do it all. <laughs> Bless you. You'll, you, will, you will get something out of that I trust. But, but what's an overview of the book of Genesis? Let's, let's start. It's, we start the book of Genesis with, with God in a garden. Go ahead and put that next slide up. With God in a garden. There we are. With God in the Garden of Eden. And then the book of Genesis ends with the, with the last hero in a series in a coffin in Egypt. What happened to the garden? What happened to life with God? What happened to God's promise? With God in Eden, ending in a coffin in Egypt. Well, a lot, a lot goes on in between there. First of all, the first couple chapters, we have creation. Right after creation, chapter 3, we have the temptation and fall of humanity in Adam. And right after chapter 3 comes chapter 4, conflict immediately. We have conflict in chapter 3 between Adam and Eve. We have conflict in chapter 4 between Cain and Abel, between two brothers. And that will repeat itself. We have, we have in chapter 5 and 6, death, death. He died, he died, he died, he died. That's no accident. It's not just a, a curiosity genealogy. It's the record of death that comes out of the fall. And the evil of the flood and the resulting God's judgment and yet God saves those who hear and believe him. Then you have the rebellion of the Tower of Babel. God said, multiply, spread out over the earth and populate the earth. He said, no, we're going to stay right here. We're going to build a city and we're going to hang together and God scatters them anyway. But he selects one person and a family to come from him named Abraham. And he makes a promise in Genesis 12. And Abraham's life then is, 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 is fleshed out in chapters 12 to 23. Abraham has a son. He has two sons, actually, Isaac and Ishmael. And there's conflict between the sons. 
24 and 25. And then Isaac, the, the, the family line continues on. The promise that God has made continues through Isaac to Jacob. But Jacob also has a twin brother. It's Jacob and Esau. And there continues to be conflict between Jacob and Esau. At times that conflict is resolved along the way. And it's interesting to see how that happens. After Jacob and Esau, Jacob has 12 sons. One of those sons is named Joseph. One of the youngest of the sons is named Joseph. And Joseph is not liked by his brothers. He's a favored son by his father, but not by his brothers. In fact, his brothers one day decide they're going to kill Joseph. And they toss him into the pit. We're done with this kid. And they toss him into a pit. They're going to leave him there to die. Might as well bury him alive. And then they think, ah, here come some traitors. We could sell him into slavery. We could get some coin out of this deal. Instead of just killing him, we won't even have to get his blood on our hands then. We'll send him to the slave traders who who cares what they do. And we have got money for burgers and beer. And so Joseph is sold away into slavery. The brothers go their way. They make up a story to the father. Joseph's dead. Wild animal got him, we guess. We don't know what happened. And Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. But he's, 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 um, he becomes a servant of a house. He ends up prospering in Egypt, but then he's falsely accused. Sin that he did not do, he's judged for. He's cast into prison. But out of prison, God favors him. And he's lifted up out of prison for sin, which he did not do. He's lifted up, and Joseph sits at the king's right hand. And Joseph becomes the savior of Egypt because God speaks to him and says, there's a famine coming and this is what you need to do. As the prime minister of Egypt for the king, this is what you need to do and that's going to save the lives of the people. And God's concerned about all those people. God's also going to use that to provide for Joseph's family. That's a little more of the story we're going to get into in just a few more minutes. But first, where it all went wrong. Did you catch where that happened? Genesis chapter 3. How did we get here? We went off the, off the road. We skidded sideways. We went off the map. We didn't listen to the GPS. Right there at the start of the trailhead, just like me, in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, let me read. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any, any of the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and you must not touch it, lest you die. You will not surely die, says the serpent, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, Pleasing to the eye. It was desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and she ate it. She gave it to her husband and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Let's, let's unpack that. What happened? How did we get there? What happens in Genesis 3? First of all, they are corrupted. Humanity is corrupted by self. Humanity is corrupted by listening to half-truths. They, Satan says, well, did God really say, oh, no, you're not really going to die? 
and he, and he plays around. Now, first of all, something, something uh, Eve does is she, she extends the rules a little bit. Oh, if God's rule's good, adding to it, making a, a bigger barrier is even bar- better. The Pharisees did the same thing. More rules don't protect us. What happens is God didn't say if you touch it, you're going to die. And so when she touches it, she doesn't die. The earth doesn't shake. God doesn't shout out. And she says, oh, I guess that's not so bad after all. So expanding God's command out and then breaking that, she's emboldened to transgress what God actually said. See how it works? Be be careful about setting up standards for your own righteousness because when you break those standards and you don't hear from God over it, you'll think you can break any standard, including his, and you won't hear from him about it. It won't have the consequences that God has told you that it will have. Satan lies. He said, oh, God's, God's withholding something from you. There is an experience that if you had this experience, it would be something. God's just, you know, holding back. This would be, oh, wow. And God knows that if you had this experience, it would, you would share something that he has shared. And he's withholding that from you. That's what the enemy did. That's, that's how he lies. You know, it's, it's, it's something, it's, it's an experiential knowing. There's a loss of naivety. There's a loss of not knowing. There's a loss of innocence. And let me warn you of something. Innocence lost cannot be restored. Let me give you some examples of that. Innocence lost cannot be restored. This is going to feel good. It's going to blow your mind, but you can't go back. I'll give you an example. Physical intimacy can't be undone. Between two, it is meant to be between two and shared by them. But when that circle widens, and, and other people are brought into that, or there are multiple partners. All of a sudden, it is not merely something that is uniquely between us. It involves more people, and so more of the focus of this whole thing, even between the two, is going to be on me. And what is meant to be a shared thing becomes more of a selfish thing, more of an individual thing. Because it can't be a group thing with all those people, so it becomes instead about me. And it can't be undone. Drugs. Drugs creates a craving for an experience. There's, a, there's, there's brain chemicals that are enticed and released, and there's, there's, there's physiological effect in your brain. There is an experience, but then you hunger for it and you crave for it. You've seen the pictures, perhaps, of the meth addict before and after. You cannot recreate the innocence of that. And there's a hunger and a longing for the very thing that is destructive and will ruin you. Innocence lost cannot be returned to you. Now, God has said their sin and their iniquity, I will remember no more. You know what? My forgetfulness, to my regret, my forgetfulness is not as perfect as God's. God says, I won't remember it. God has said, my son carried it away. I will not bring it up again. I have to keep reminding myself of that. Because where I have strayed, where I have erred, now and again, the echoes 
come back. The regret returns. What I can't undo, what I can't pull back out of my mind that's already there. And I urge you, guard your heart. Guard your innocence. Guard your naivety. All that Satan and his world would tempt you to say, experience this, go a little way. If you think that's then not right, well, don't go any farther. We heard a great illustration. If you were at Missions Connection on Friday night, if you, if you were ahead of the two-mile backup of cars that unfortunately not everybody who wanted to come got in, if you were there, uh, the, the main speaker on Friday night, Dr. Ravi Zacharias, shared a story about a friend of his who's a heart surgeon, and I said, this is worth retelling. His friend is a heart surgeon. He work, well, not, sorry, he's not a heart surgeon. He's a trauma surgeon, works in the emergency room. And he got a call at 11 o'clock one night, and he's always out of it by 9 o'clock. He said he turns into a pumpkin after 9 o'clock or something like that. Uh, just he, he's, he's gone to the world, so he goes to bed early. And, and yet his own private phone rings at 11 p.m. So, who, well, who is this? It's somebody who knows me. And he, and he answers the phone, and it's his friend, the surgeon. He said, I need you to pray for me. I've done something terrible. Had somebody come into the ER, and she is just a mess. She has been abused and brutalized, and, and uh, the, the paramedics that bring her in, they tell her, doc, they tell them, Doc, she's not going to make it. You know, just, just let her you know, go to the side. She's, she's already gone. There's, there's no hope. He says, no, I'm not going to let her die like this. I am not going to let her go out of that brutalizing experience. And he realizes the, 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 the best thing to do, it's, it's so urgent that, that um, he, he, he surgically opens, and he, and he brings his hand right in to to massage your heart direct heart massage to try to keep this woman alive and he tries and he tries but it's no use she's gone so he goes to wash up and as he's washing up he realizes he has a small cut on his hand just a small cut and 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 about that time one of the nurses brings in this whole bucket full of drug paraphernalia and dirty needles and all of this kind of stuff. And he says, oh my goodness, what have I done? He calls his friend to pray for him. Because he's, real, he's, 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 he's afraid that he has contracted a blood-borne disease. And, and his friend, Dr. Zechariah, said, well, well, how big of a cut is it? Is, is, is it a deep gash? He says, no, it's just a little paper cut. Just a little cut, but that's all it takes. That's all it takes. Sin is not something to be trifled with. Just a little infects us. Just a little here infected the human race with rebellion that plays out immediately. We see that, that corruption that sin has brought played out in conflict between the two. God calls, him in, God calls him into account. Adam, where are you? Adam, what have you done? And what does Adam say? God, that woman, the one you gave me, she, what's he doing? Already there's a distance set up between him and Eve. Because he said, she's the one, she's the one that gave me the fruit and I ate it. But also he has set up distance between him and God, conflict between him and God. He says, God, you're the one that gave me her who gave me that fruit to eat. This is her fault or it's your fault. It's certainly not my fault. And you see the conflict that's already developed between the two of them. And God makes a declaration here. Don't think of this, this statement 
these statements of the curse, don't think of them as God just says, okay, well, I'm going to make things miserable for you. He's telling them now what is going to be. This is the outflowing result out of what you've done that I wanted to spare you from. He says, he says to the woman, let me find the right verse. To the woman, he says in verse 16, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Your desire will be for your husband, and yet he will rule over you. That word rule means dominate. This is not describing the ideal of marriage. The husband or the wife should desire and love her husband, and the husband should lead and rule strongly. How much, how are, how are, much you won't idealize that, and it works in your, in your home, and I'm happy for you. I doubt it, but I'm happy for you if you're convinced of it, that it is working nicely. You see, because what he's describing here is that is not what will happen. You're, the desire is a desire to master. That's how it's used in the next chapter. You, you're, you'll, you, you will desire to overtake him, to have mastery over him, but he's still going to dominate, not nicely, godly lead. Ephesians 5 gives you the pattern of what this should look like in a healthy way, in a redemptive way, based on faith in Christ. But he says what's going to happen is there's going to be conflict. There's going to be a power play between the two of you that have committed yourselves to one another. There's going to be a power play between you. Conflict between them, not only conflict between them, but there's going to be conflict in there in, in those who come after them. But let me not leave Genesis chapter 3 before I get to the point of the covering. After he has spoken to both of them about the curse, the hard work and the cursed ground is going to bring up thorns and, th- thorns and thistles, the sweat of your brow, you're going to eat your food until you return to the ground from whence you came. And then, in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin. The fig leaves they made would not do. The Lord made garments of skin as a covering for them now that they knew they were uncovered. The fig leaves wouldn't last. God makes them leather clothes. But something had to happen. Something had to happen for those skins to be sewn into suits. What had to happen was an animal that had nothing to do with this. An innocent one has to die for them to be covered. There's an image already of what will happen years ahead at the cross of Calvary. An innocent one, the Lord Jesus Christ, would die for our sin, for our guilt, our exposure before God's holiness to be covered, to be paid for. So, there's the, so they're corrupted by self, and they're, they're conflicted by sin, conflicted with one another, and the, we'll see that conflict flow out. They're covered by a sacrifice. God makes a promise there. It's the first promise of the gospel that the, this, the seed, the descendant of the woman, will one day crush the serpent's head. That was a, a hymn that John Wesley penned on those lines. But... I want to go forward now from chapter 3 into chapter 4. What happens in Genesis chapter 4? Eve has a son. His name is Cain. Eve has another son. His name is Abel. And she's so excited. With God's help, I've got a son. And maybe one of these sons is going to be the one that is going to crush that serpent's head. This is wonderful. It doesn't work out that way. 
there's strife between the two of them. And the very next incident we find recorded after Genesis 3, we find the conflict continuing. In Genesis 4, Cain kills his brother Abel, murders him. It wasn't the gun. It wasn't a 30-clip ammunition. It wasn't a 10-clip ammunition. It wasn't a 7-clip ammunition. I don't know what he killed him with. It might have been a rock. It might have been something sharp. But we're pretty sure technologically it wasn't a gun, and yet still murder occurs as it still well. Heard, heard it said on Friday night, well said on Friday night, the problem is not economic. The problem is not weapons. The problem is moral. The problem is in the human heart. That's what's gone wrong. And nobody wants to talk about that. So we'll try to build more fences. We hope we will be safer. But we will not because we cannot build fences from ourselves. So the conflict continues. And you see that conflict not only in Cain and Abel. You see it in, in Ishmael and Isaac. You see it in Esau and Jacob. You see it in Joseph and his brothers. The conflict continues one to another. Sin is self-centered rebellion that brings conflict not only in Genesis, but in Brush Prairie. Turn over to James chapter 4 with me. Actually, if, uh, we're going to save a little time. I've got it on the screen in front of you. You've got it written in your notes so you know where to go. James chapter 4 asks the question, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your own desires that battle within you? That's where the conflict comes from. That's where the conflict that exists between you and somebody else comes from. It's your desires and their desires, and each are about self rather than the other person, and so, no surprise, they're in conflict together. 1 John chapter 3 speaks to how do you resolve that self-centered rebellion that brings conflict. The formula is given to love God, to love your neighbor to love your brother. This is a message you've heard from the beginning. You should love one another. See the connection? Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Anyone who does not love remains in death. The opposite of this, this strivings and this conflict is love which seeks the other's good rather than your own desire. First John chapter 4. We love him because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. He has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. How we treat humanity made in the image of God. And I mean, brothers and sisters in Christ, I mean how you treat one another in a church. Those whom you share faith in Christ with, I also mean your neighbors. I mean the people at work. Those people who don't like you, and so you don't like them, but they are made in the very image of God. And how we treat those who are made in God's image is how we treat God. How we worship is how we relate. How we care for one another over our own desires how we seek peace and pursue it. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. They will inherit the earth. And he also said, as you've done it to the least of these, you have done it, you have done it unto me. You see, conflict is not Genesis. You could think of somebody right now that you're in conflict with, one form or another. Somebody you don't like, somebody that doesn't like you, somebody you've argued with, you've tangled with, or you simply avoid 
And yet, the gospel calls us to reconciliation. If we have found peace with God vertically, the beauty of the cross is if we have found peace with God vertically, then that extends itself into peace with others horizontally. Every time you look at the cross, it should remind you of that. That Jesus is our peace, Ephesians 3 says. Not only between us and God, but also between others. I can be at peace with them because I can seek peace and pursue it by seeking their good rather than my desire. Go back to the story of Joseph. Go back to the story of Joseph. Joseph in chapter 42 to 45. This would be a stop. I think in the notes I put 42 and 43. I shortcutted it. 42 to 45. You can read that in your morning devotion. That won't take that long. Joseph brings his brothers back. Joseph is the prime minister of Egypt. And one day there's a knock on Egypt's door, and it's Joseph's brothers. There's a drought. In the world. Yeah, God said there's a drought coming. There's a famine coming. That's why he has Joseph store up all his food. Well, Jacob and family have heard well, there's food in Egypt. There's no food here, but there's food in Egypt. So they go on down there. They're not thinking about Joseph, and they don't even recognize him. He looks nothing like that kid that they threw into the pit. But he recognizes them. He recognizes them. And oh, he could have had them then. Oh, he could have nailed them. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He provokes. He asks. He asks about his little brother. He asks about his father. He gets them talking. And then he, 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 then he puts a little squeeze on them. But what he's leading them to is the point that they will admit what they did, that God is holding them accountable for it, that they indeed are guilty. He gets one of them, Judah, and Judah's the tribe. Yeah, he's not any more worthy than the rest of them, but Judah's the one that Jesus ends up coming from, that the David and David's sons come from. Why is that? He's not the firstborn. Where did that come from? It might be from this. Judah steps up and says, let me stand at one point, let me stand in his younger brother's place. You keep me, you hold me accountable for the sin that it seems that because God has done this, God is holding us accountable, so don't let that judgment fall on him. Let it fall on me in his place. It's a beautiful picture again. And when they have come to that point of repentance, that we are guilty before God, and we would need God to make peace, that's when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God uses it for good to preserve us all alive. Even the fall, even the fall, God will use this present brokenness to press us after him, to press us into our need and our dependence upon him, to wear us out in the midst of the conflict that we long for peace. You've got people around you that are weary. Can you be like a Joseph? Can you, instead of being the one to continue to throw a little starter fluid on that fire, could you be the one that, like Joseph, would lead people toward forgiveness and peace? Ephesians chapter 4 puts it this way. We'll close with this verse. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 this one is not in your notes. You might want to write the reference down. Ephesians 4.32, be, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you.
you've got somebody that you're in conflict with, if you have been forgiven, if you have been forgiven, let it go. Not only let it go, but go after them. Show them. Seek peace and pursue it. Read that story of Joseph and then be Joseph, reaching out and provoking others to the same peace and forgiveness that is available through Jesus Christ. Like Courtney Rolfels described that she saw that in her mom and dad, even in the midst of the worst trouble of life. Let them see it in you. Let them see something of God and his salvation in the midst of the stuff of this life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, give us that humility, Lord, to seek others rather than what we want, to seek others rather than our own small ambitions. Father, would you use us in life this week, Lord, to bring peace to somebody, to just speak in peace or to show an act of mercy? And Father, would you guard us from temptation? Would you guard us from what seems like a mere paper cut but could infect and draw our soul aside. Would you, Father, lead us in your life? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.